Welcome to episode 50 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, how to hoard massive amounts of simple carbs for your next backpacking trip. On the top five list, we'll share the top five secrets you should never keep from your trail mates. Then on the Summit Gear Review, an ultralight backpacking staple that will cut both your pack weight and your pack volume. Next on the Backpack Hack of the Week, you'll learn how to dry your fly. And we'll wrap up the show with a little trail wisdom from a man who loves adventure. Or maybe he doesn't. All this, and that's about it, today on The First 40 Miles. In the ideal diet, in an ideal world, we eat tons of fresh fruits and vegetables. And then we include complex carbohydrates and lean meat in small quantities. That's really the diet that helps us to feel good. It helps to keep us healthy, avoid chronic health problems, um, and it just fuels us for everyday life. But that kind of food, that wisdom, kind of flies out the window when you lace up your hiking shoes. Backpackers really need calorie-dense foods that can be accessed quickly and that provide a ton of energy or calories. Now, at this point, I'm sure some listener is going to disagree with you and say, well, when you're backpacking, you still need nutritious foods. And I guess my answer would be that it's a trade-off. If you're eating healthy day in and day out, and you go a few days eating more calorie-dense foods on your backpacking trip, that's not going to have a significant impact on your long-term health, because it was just a few days out of a lifetime of eating nutritious food. But the trade-off you're making is that you have to carry this stuff in your pack. Fresh fruits and vegetables are pretty hard to carry in your pack. We're always talking about bringing calorie-dense stuff on the trail because that means you don't have to carry as much weight in your pack and you still get all the extra calories that you need when you're backpacking. You don't need all those extra calories when you're sitting at your desk doing your day job or anything else. So it's a different environment, but also I guess we're recognizing that it's sort of a temporary thing as well, you know, unless you're a thru-hiker and going all summer. Yeah, this is one of those things, one of those aspects of backpacking that I feel totally weird about, just kind of almost guilty that, what, one of my lunches is going to be a Snickers bar? Really? I can do that? But what it comes down to is that you need more calories than normal when you're out backpacking. And the most dense sources of calories are fats and carbohydrates. So lucky for you, we are at peak carbohydrate season. This is the time to start harvesting your carbohydrates from your kids' Halloween stash. (laughs) This weekend, it's going to be Halloween. The kids will be out there collecting all kinds of great backpacking food. So here's what my parents did. (laughs) They used to have us dump all of our candy into a bowl, and then they would, quote unquote, hide it on top of the refrigerator. And then I think what they did after we went to sleep was they picked out all the good stuff and then... 
I bet. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So if you can get candy from kids or just pick it up at your grocery store, you're an adult. It is a great thing to have on a backpacking trip. And one of the nice things about it is that it comes in small sizes. So you don't need to bring the full size Snickers bar or whatever. You can get the little fun size, aka backpacking size, to take with you on your next trip. So your parents' approach, was that uh, maybe considered the uh, the communist approach? Oh, wow. Take everyone's candy, dump it all into one pot, and then kind of dole it back out. But they skim off but the best But skim stuff. the best off, yeah, for themselves. Yeah, so. wow. Rough. That was a low Sorry. blow. <laughs> <laughs> After we just well, honored my mom in our last episode, now you're calling her a communist? communist. <laughs> I'm glad we're not in the 50s anymore, so no <laughs> one will actually take that seriously and arraign her before Congress or anything. Um, one approach that I think that works pretty well is when I talk with the kids before taking them out trick-or-treating so they understand that like I am doing a service by taking them out trick-or-treating and I expect some kind compensation for my service. I've heard you call it daddy tax before. Yeah. (laughs) So kind compensation is what we fill out every April and send to the government. That's a kind compensation. That's how you're supposed to think of it. Yes. (laughs) Lovely. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. At the end of the trick-or-treating night, I reach into their bag and say, Daddy tax. That makes the tax ever so easier to bear. Mm, the cheerful voice. Yes. It's just all about how you sugarcoat. <laughs> Never mind that. Nice. <laughs> well, we do have some recommendations for what to skim off the top or um, what to ask for in kind compensations. So Snickers is a really popular bar. Payday bars, even though they're a little more rare, you may not see as many in your kid's uh, Halloween bag. Make sure you skim those off first before they get a chance to throw them out. I don't think kids really go for payday bars. Yeah, I think you're right, but I love them. Oh, they're so good. Another thing you'll want to skim off, and this will be easy because it's another thing that kids don't really go for, it's the Mounds or the Almond Joy bars. Those are still pretty popular, not with kids, but people buy them. And those are loaded with coconut, which is loaded with fat. Yeah, so if you can find these things that uh, you like that the kids don't like, that's a win-win, right? That's right. And raisins, make sure you grab those out of your kid's Halloween bag because those are actually healthy and they're cute. Those little tiny boxes. Oh, we could even say it's a survival item. Like, have you ever um, made a raisin box whistle? No, I haven't. Yeah. Okay. Well, you just take all the raisins out, throw them away or whatever you do with well, raisins. Eat them. <laughs> eat them. And then you blow into the box. Like you put your whole mouth around it and blow and it makes this kind of more like a whistle. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll have to try it sometime. And then another thing you can grab out of their Halloween bags is um, any kind of hard candy or chewy candy. The high fructose corn syrup stuff, just the really syrupy sweet stuff that's completely sealed. So not the kind of candy with the ends that are twisted, because if any of that gets wet, if you get rain inside of your food stash, it'll just be a syrupy mess. So if you can get the stuff that's completely sealed, like the Laffy Taffies or things like that, then those are good too. And be sure to grab any spider rings out of their bag because those make for great pranks in about six months. So you want to hold on to those. So this is Halloween with a mission this year. This isn't just taking the kids out to get their candy. Now you have an agenda. 
Now you've got purpose for Halloween. For today's top five list, we have the top five secrets you should never keep from your trail mates. Now, if you're introverted like Josh and I, maybe your temptation is just to kind of keep everything to yourself. But there are some things that you should probably not keep to yourself. Maybe it's time to open up a little bit and uh, talk to the people around you, either your traveling companions or the people that you meet on the trail, because sometimes silence is not golden. Sometimes silence is deadly. You had to go there. <laughs> this is our Halloween episode. It is. Silence is deadly. <laughs> Morbid. <laughs> the number one secret that you should never keep from your trail mates is bad trail news. So if you've been reading the trail reports and you see that there's a washed out bridge that changes the route, or if there's an avalanche warning, or if there's thunderstorms or snowstorms in the forecast, those are things that could significantly alter the way you behave on the trail. It may even change the entire route that you take. If you hear of a predatory bear in the area or a wildfire, those are things that you need to share with your trail mates. Especially if you're the one planning the trip, if you're kind of the the leader, then you need to communicate those things to your group so that they can make a more informed decision. In our recent trip to the Redwoods, originally we had planned to go somewhere completely different. And because of weather changes, we all decided as a group to go somewhere else. So while our group leader was doing lots of research and, you know, making sure that he knew what was going on with the weather report, we were also doing our job on our end so that we were well informed also. So you can't just put it on your group leader to have all the information. You need to make the phone calls as well and uh, make sure that you're sharing what you find out with your group. The number two secret that you should never keep from your trail mates is if you have just that that gut feeling, that intuition, uh, just you have a feeling that something's not right. You should feel free to share that feeling, even if you can't really pinpoint it, you can't really say this is why I feel this, you can still share that feeling with your trail mates and get their thoughts and get their feelings as well. You might be the kind of person that just has that uncanny ability to just sense when things aren't right. Um, and so that's a great opportunity to speak up. You know, whether it's that you're just getting worried that, hey, you know, we haven't seen Ed for a while, something might not be right, or, you know, just some sense that something's wrong on the trail. Some people have this kind of feeling when they end up going down the wrong path. On the other hand, I will say there are some times when I have this feeling when I'm on the right path. But it's okay to stop and say, I'm feeling a little weird about this. And then everyone's able to talk through it. And yeah, maybe you are on the right path. That's fine. Um, But it gives you that opportunity to make sure. The number three secret you should never keep from your trail mates is if you are recovering from an injury. Most of us don't want to be the one that's holding the rest of the group back, but going full speed ahead as if nothing happened could make things worse. So if you are just recovering from even just a small injury, it's okay to take it slow and the rest of the group can accommodate or they can kind of switch off or you can be in the middle for a while so there's someone behind you and someone ahead. So you can still have a great experience on the trail, but just let the rest of your group know so they can adapt. The number four secret that you should never keep from your trail mates is if you're having signs of 
a heart attack or other severe health issues. For a heart attack, there's some early warning signs that you can be aware of. There's chest pain, there's shortness of breath, and then also lightheadedness. Well, I want to jump in and say sometimes people experience symptoms like this when they're at high altitudes, so it never hurts to say something. If you're experiencing any of these symptoms, it's okay to speak up and then you can at least get down in altitude a little bit and reassess how you're feeling. Yeah, so there's things you can do about the situation, whether it truly is a a heart attack that's happening or whether it is something that's just altitude related. Either way, you can chew up and swallow an aspirin. Uh, Aspirin will help keep things from getting worse. If you have heart medication, obviously you would want to take that as prescribed. You can lie down, try your best to relax, reduce your physical activity a little bit, or a lot. (laughs) That'll reduce the stress on your heart. Increase your oxygen if you can. So really the way to do that is to drop in elevation. And uh, try to stay warm because your body is working extra when it has to keep itself warm. Now, if something bad has happened and someone's having a, a medical emergency, send for help, but don't leave that person all alone while someone gets help. So it's best to have someone with the person while someone else goes to get help. Do we need to insert our medical disclaimer here that we're not doctors and... Yeah, I guess so. The usual medical disclaimer applies. We're not healthcare professionals. We don't know what we're talking about. I'm only a healthcare data professional, which means I can tell you what's wrong with your healthcare data, but not with your health. We'll put a link in the show notes to thesurvivaldoctor.com who has a few more tips for you. And I think he's a real doctor. We'll put it on him, huh? Sounds good. Sounds good to me. And the number five secret you should never keep from your trail mates is if you have broken, lost, or forgotten gear. So don't suffer needlessly, even if it's a major piece of gear and you know you will never live it down. Something like a tent or a sleeping bag. Backpackers are just ingenious creatures and something can be rigged up using combined resources or skills or ideas. And backpackers are famous for helping out friends and strangers equally. And I know we've told the story over and over of my neglected rain gear, but it's just... I think if I hadn't spoken up, it would have been just irresponsible. So definitely speak up if you've forgotten something. Even if it's something like a forgotten prescription, you would be surprised the things that people pack with them just in case. So definitely speak up if anything is missing from your pack because there's a good chance that someone can help you out. So those are the top five secrets that you should never keep from your trail mates. But because this week is Halloween... We're going to throw in a number six bonus. The number six secret you should never keep from your trailmates is if you are a vampire or a werewolf, one full moon or one first aid incident can really wreak havoc on your campsite and lead to real trust issues on future trips. For today's Summit Gear Review, we are reviewing the Sea to Summit Ultra Sill Compression Dry Sack. Dry bags are extremely helpful on backpacking trips. They not only give you dry gear, but they give you peace of mind. You know that the gear inside that bag is going to be dry when you need it. So that means dry socks, dry base layer, dry sleeping bag, and dry jacket. 
And if you've ever used a traditional dry bag, you know that it requires a little bit of getting used to because of the waterproof barrier. So it's really tricky to push out all of the air when you're trying to seal it up. But the Sea to Summit Ultra Silk Compression Dry Sack solves that problem. This dry sack has a really unique compression idea. It allows air to be completely pushed out so that it compresses all the way, but water can't get in because of the waterproof, air permeable event fabric base. So all of the air goes out of that base. It's made with Ultra Sill 30 Denier High Tenacity Cordura. So not only is it really thin fabric, but it's very tough fabric. All of the seams in this sack are double stitched and tape sealed. And the double stitching is really important because this is a compression sack where you'll be shoving things in and then tightening up the cords and putting a lot of pressure on those seams. Because this is a waterproof bag, it has a roll top closure and it's completely watertight. You roll it three times and then you click the buckle closed and you have a really tight waterproof seal. You mentioned the fabric is ultra sill nylon. And so one of the terms you'll hear a lot in backpacking gear is sill nylon. What that is is nylon that's been impregnated with silicone. And so the silicone is what gives it the waterproofing ability. The nylon, of course, provides the strength. One of the areas where this bag simplifies and cuts weight is that it only has three straps. And if you've ever used a compression sack, sometimes it just feels like you're wrestling a spider because you don't know which of the legs are supposed to go where. But this only has three straps, which makes it super simple to use. For utility, this bag is not really meant for protecting gear that will be submerged. There are other types of bags for that, and those typically are a lot heavier. So if you're canoeing or pack rafting, that sort of stuff, you're probably going to get a different dry sack that is uh, completely submergible. Submersible? You'll probably get a dry sack that's completely submersible, where even when it's completely underwater, it keeps all the water out, your gear is dry. This one is more appropriate for backpacking, where you're worried about, you know, rain, or it drops into a creek and you pull it back out. Or you have a leaky platypus or something. So you mentioned this only has three straps instead of four, those compression straps. So that makes it a little less spidery than most bags. But how do you deal with those straps and not getting them all twisted up? And uh, they're they're just a mess sometimes. They are. (laughs) So what I do is I go to the very bottom of the bag where one of the straps is attached and I just follow that strap all the way up to the top of the bag. So once I get one strap all the way straight and untangled, then it seems like the others just follow. So at least I have one that's totally untwisted and the lid is on the right direction. The rest just work themselves out. So for mass, this compression dry sack is super compact and very light. So for the smallest one, which is the extra small, it's 2.3 ounces and it holds six liters. But here's the magic. It compresses all the way down to two liters in volume. So you can take something that normally takes up six liters worth of volume and compress it down to two liters. And the compressibility obviously is kind of an average, right? I mean, so clothing is gonna compress well, sleeping bags, tents, you know, other fabrics. You can't necessarily compress your food stash by two thirds. That would be kind of a gooey mess. You know, depends on the on what's in there. 
But in general, this compression sack is getting you down to one third of the original size. That's pretty cool. Yeah, the next size up is the one that I used for my Enlightened Equipment Enigma quilt, and that was the small, and it's 2.6 ounces and 10 liters, which compresses down to 3.3 liters. The next size up is medium, that's only 3.2 ounces, and it holds 14 liters, compresses down to 4.5 liters, and the large is 3.4 ounces, and it holds 20 liters, which compresses down to 6.7 liters. I think for most of the things that you would be using these compression dry sacks for, you would need the extra small or the small. I can't imagine using the medium or large unless you had a a massive, you know, two-person sleeping bag that you were using. So, you know, I think those smaller sizes are definitely more useful. For maintenance, you'll just want to avoid contact with sharp objects or subjecting the sack to high abrasion. So just don't drag it along the ground. That can really compromise the waterproof fabric. For investment, depending on the size, these bags will run 33 to $48. Um, that's a lot more than just a standard stuff sack that you might pick up at the local big box store or, or backpacking store. So what you're paying for is the ultra light weight plus the waterproof ability of the the sack to keep your gear dry and that ability to really compress it down a lot and and know that your sack is not going to rip apart when you compress it uh, really tightly. So this is a performance stuff sack and really it should be used for the things where that really matters. So sleeping bag or quilt, probably a great candidate to put into this ultralight waterproof compression sack. You can go budget on your other stuff sacks. You know, the stuff that you keep your mess kit in or things like that. Just a cheap little bag will work just fine. Yeah, this bag is worth it for keeping things dry and compressed. The down quilt that I have, when it's fully lofted, takes up the space of a small child. And then to be able to compress that down into just this little ball, you know, something the size of a volleyball, and to know that it was going to stay dry the entire time, um, very satisfying. I was a little bit nervous about using a compression sack on my down quilt because I wasn't sure how the compression would... Yeah, how it would affect the quilt and whether the quilt would come back... Right. I even had it compressed for a few days before the trip. I know you're not supposed to keep down compressed, but I was trying my best to get everything all packed. I thought, oh, I'll just stuff it in here and get it all ready. And then I never ended up taking it back out. It, it relofted really quickly. So the compression sack, I would recommend it for use with a down quilt. It didn't, it didn't affect the loft at all. I also used the extra small Sea to Summit Ultra Sill compression sack for holding the body of the tent. Josh had the fly and I carried, I don't know, would you call it the body? The main, yeah. the main bedroom of the <laughs> tent. And the reason I did that was because tents get wet. No matter what you do, and especially on this last trip, our tent got soaked and I didn't want my other gear in my bag to get wet. So one of the great things about a dry bag is that it keeps wet things wet and dry things dry. So it works in reverse. Keeps all the wet things from getting other things in your pack wet. As a little side note, um, when you're shopping, don't get this bag confused with the Event Compression Dry Sack, also made by Sea to Summit. This Ultra Sill Compression Sack that we've reviewed today 
has the event technology, but it's not the same bag as the event compression dry sack. They're both two different bags, and the event compression dry sack is actually almost twice as heavy as the UltraSil compression dry sack. And if you're new to backpacking and you're not familiar with the Sea to Summit brand, they are an Australian company and they have an extensive catalog of extremely dependable backpacking gear. So check out the UltraSil compression dry sacks by Sea to Summit, and we will have the link in the show notes. Today's backpack hack of the week is how to dry your fly. When you wake up in the morning, the inside of your tent should be mostly dry. There should be enough ventilation that the moisture from your breath can escape out of the uh, kind of the interior of your tent. And where does that moisture go? Well, it all collects and condenses on the inside of your rain fly. So double-walled tent, most of the moisture should escape out of the tent itself, but it doesn't escape out of the rain fly. So you wake up in the morning with a rain fly that's wet on the inside. So if you're not too excited about stuffing a wet rain fly into your dry pack, there are a couple things that you can do to dry it out quickly. So in the morning, take the rain fly off and shake it out. This works best with two people. It's ridiculously complicated with one person. So definitely get someone to help you out and keep shaking until most of the water is off. Next, you'll want to set your rain fly upside down on your tent while you make breakfast. And if it's windy, be sure to attach it to the tent so your buddies won't have to drain their camera batteries taking pictures of you chasing a fly. (laughs) We got plenty of experience dealing with a wet tent on our last trip uh, when we went to the Redwoods a couple months ago. It got super wet in the middle of the week, so we had to deal with that. And uh, we managed to get it all dried out. And then we did this add-on trip to the Rogue River on our way home. And when we were at the Rogue River, everything was dry. There was no rain. But when we woke up the next morning, there was condensation inside the rain fly. Just that condensation that happens from the moisture in our breath overnight. So we did just these things. We took off the rain fly. We shook it to, uh, you know, kind of shake most of the water off. And we just turned it upside down and put it right back up on top of our tent. By the time we were done with breakfast, that rain fly was completely dry. And it was great to be able to pack a dry tent home with us. So if you can shake the fly and put it upside down to dry, you will avoid packing a totally damp rain fly. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from William Least Heat Moon. He's a travel writer, author, and historian, and he's also known as William Trogdon. He took on the Native American name least heat moon, to honor his Osage Indian heritage, but also because his family is part of an honor society that uses Native American ceremonies and customs, and his father is part of that group, and his brother is, so his father is heat moon, his brother is little heat moon, and William is least heat moon. He said, there are two kinds of adventurers, those who go truly hoping to find adventure, And those who go secretly hoping they won't. All right, the big reveal. Which one are you? I think I'm number one. (laughs) I don't go looking for like emergencies or disasters, but I want something to be unique about every trip that I go on. 
And I am number two. Who knows, maybe I'll change someday, but I'm okay with non-adventures. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. Everything that you want to be, yeah, it's all dumb. Okay. <laughs> and if you're new to backpacking and you're not familiar with the Sea to Summit brand, it they have. Blah, blah. Yeah. And oh, I'm gonna say that again.